Good morning and welcome to Essex Church, home of Kensington Unitarians. For those of you who don't know me, if there are any visitors, my name is Harold Lorenzelli and I'm a member of the congregation, of the committee and of the choir normally, but today I'm moving over. Um, Sarah is away, she's at a thing called Fuse, I think, um, which sounds like a good party. And so that's why I'm taking the service. She sent me a text wishing me and you <laughs> well. So we've all made our way here this morning along different pathways to spend an hour together. I have no idea what your week has been like, but if it's been anything like mine, it will have been made up of possibly a mixture of a little toil, a little sweat, though no tears, I'm glad to say, as I wrestled with this morning's service and giving shape to it. The theme is uh, wisdom, and we'll be exploring that not just throughout this service, but throughout this month as well. I hope you find it interesting and that you leave later on with something more than you came in with. That is to say, I, I hope that the act of communal worship is a positive experience for you. Of course, there may be those amongst you here this morning who are slightly less sure of why you're here than I am. Well, maybe it's with a spirit of inquiry. So I hope some of your questions may find an answer. There may be those amongst you who are here this morning who have some fresh anxiety in their lives. And to you, we offer the chance to lay your cares aside, albeit momentarily, temporarily, while you participate in the singing and listen to the readings. Just sit back and enjoy yourselves. There are no great columns to hide behind in this church. So we face each other, warts and all, in an act of communal worship. We come in friendship and love. And whether you have come to share your troubles or your joys, whatever the case, you are most welcome. This is a safe space. This is your space. And as I light the candle this morning, it's good to remember that there will be others doing exactly the same thing throughout the country. It's a symbol of our solidarity. Nazruddin and the bowl of sweets. Now, the parents among you this morning with young children are not going to thank me for this little story. Neither are the food nutritionists and the dentists, if there's any amongst you. In fact, the whole crowd of you may be alienated by this tale. But you know what? For once, I don't care. If it sets you thinking, my job is done. So, Nazruddin had gathered all his disciples round him at a feast. They ate and they drank for several hours and amongst other things talked about the origin of the stars, the meaning of the universe and other such weighty matters. The night drew on and eventually everyone made ready to go home. There was a fine plate of sweets left on the table and as people prepared to leave, Nasruddin encouraged his disciples to eat them. One person, however, refused. 
The master is testing us, he said. He wants to see whether we can control our desires and not give in to the temptation of taking a sweet, delicious as they look. You are mistaken, replied Nazaruddin. The best way of dealing with a desire is to satisfy it. I would rather you had the sweets in your bellies in their rightful place than in your minds which should be filled with nobler things. Well, the story does not record the reaction of the disciple, but the moral seems clear enough. People can at times be too clever by far, and wisdom can be misplaced. I hope the tale gives you food for thought. So now we enter into a, a short time of reflection. Let's just take a few moments to reflect quietly. Great Spirit, that some call God, we turn inwards for a few moments as we acknowledge our frailty and confusion as we face the dilemmas of our world. As we face difficult decisions, may we find the courage to confront them and the clarity of thinking to help us make the right choice. There will be times when we need to step back and examine our lives. May we learn to act in accordance with the principle that what we do must in some way lead to a better understanding of ourselves and the needs of those around us. We have to recognize that our acts have consequences. May our guiding light be the love that nourishes the soul. We will fall short of our aspirations, but the striving must never cease. We must cultivate a spirit of generosity and not allow ourselves to be caught up in the false and narrow-minded world of prejudice that seeks to divide humanity. We are not separated by race, nor colour, nor creed. We need to remember that this is one world which we share with those who may be more or less fortunate than ourselves. There may be things we cannot change, and we must have the courage, nonetheless, to continue. There may be ways in which we can make our mark, however small. Let us be optimistic as we face the world, but with an optimism tempered by realism. We do not seek to be heroes, and our little victories may be small when judged by history. Nonetheless, let us hope we can learn from life's lessons in the knowledge that we are, all of us, unique. A miracle of creation in a vast universe seeking wisdom where we can. Amen. The poem that I'm going to read to you now, Kindness, came to me at Christmas time from a friend of mine Gary, who lives in, in Massachusetts. 
And Gary always chooses thoughtful stuff to send to his friends, and I wanted to give it an even wider audience than his normal list of recipients. It's about the notion that in order to fully appreciate any blessing, we first have to know what it is to be bereft of that gift. So the inference is that we need to cultivate a spirit of awareness about whatever life may throw at us. We cannot be casual about anything. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. We now have a period of quiet reflection, followed by some music. And you may think of whatever you wish, whether it be your interpretation of wisdom, your take on the poem, whatever you like.
Okay, so here we go. Well, let me come clean straight away. I feel a fraud, my friends. Ask me to talk about the merits of Sartre as a dramatist or symbolism in the poetry of Mallarmé, and I might, I say I might, be able to convince you that I knew something of what I was talking about. But wisdom, which I take to be the fruit of deep reflection, the outcome of considered thought, and then the enactment of those principles in the small and larger workings of one's daily life. Well, I'm not sure about all that sort of wisdom. I used to say jokingly that experience was the recognition that I'm making the same mistake again. Which is a kind of wisdom, I suppose. The idea that one learns from one's mistakes is morally attractive, but I'm far more drawn by the notion that what we do is often governed by forces which are outside my control. I suppose I'm talking here about the notion of free will versus determinism. Biochemistry, microbiology, are, as we speak, exploring the inevitability of certain reactions. The idea being that even if we imagine ourselves to be in control of our decisions and moral attitudes, it's more likely that our genetics and our environment are shaping us far more than we realise. So, attractive as the idea may be, we are not, according to scientists, independent agents fashioning our morality in some cosy, moral, pick-and-mix world, but like poor old Orestes, tied to our destinies, bound to the great wheel of fate, unable to extricate ourselves from the bonds of custom and habit. But maybe I'm getting a little bit too worked up about all this. Am I being a little disingenuous, I hear you ask? There have been times when I have achieved a small measure of what I will call illumination. When the curtain was drawn aside for a brief span and I glimpsed something larger than myself immersed in the petty concerns of daily life. It happens when I gaze up at the stars and marvel for an instant at the immensity of the universe. It happens when I'm in the natural world and see the evidence around me of billions of years of creation. The feeling that all this is so incredibly big out there and each one of us is so incredibly small. Yes, perspective is the thing that provides the breathing space. There's a poem by Shelley it takes the need to recognise the impermanence of what surrounds us. It's called Ozymandias. And it was written upon seeing a statue in the Egyptian desert of the once powerful Ramesses II. Here are the poem's last six lines. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. 
Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. But you don't need necessarily to travel to some exotic climb to achieve that sort of perspective. It happens in more humble circumstances too. When we step outside our own personal concerns and view the larger picture. I wonder how many times you've been on a walk with a friend when you shared stories, concerns about yourself and life. There's something about being in the open air and a ramble, both physical and moral, through the pathways of the mind that can do you a power of good. To share insights in a non-threatening environment is for me one of life's chief delights. Somehow, the air and the exercise absorb the potential internal conflicts and we breathe out the antagonisms and irritations that threaten our equilibrium. And I believe this phenomenon occurs also in the act of communal worship. When we reflect on matters and share our thoughts in a spirit of compassion and empathy for each other. It's this process of sharing, of coming together, of being prepared to listen to voices other than our own that helps shape us for the better as human beings. We do well to listen to that inner and outer voice, the promptings of the soul, call it what you will. Self-reflection is unique to our species. Socrates remarked that the unexamined life was not worth living. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Because that was his job, after all, to make people examine themselves. Mind you, that other great commentator on the workings of the human mind, Woody Allen, I'm talking about, observed at one stage that the examined life was, as he put it, no ball. Everything comes at a price, as they say, and the road to enlightenment has many tortuous routes. I began my research on the topic of wisdom by asking my friends what they thought it was. For some it was the ability simply to survive. I think by that they meant a the sort of philosophical detachment that I've been talking about. An ability to ride above the storm and navigate through this course of a rather bumpy road of life. For others, it was a synonym for realism, a need to acknowledge our limitations and to recognise our strengths as well as our weaknesses. I was surprised by the number of people who at first just sort of glazed over when I asked them the question, what they were doing, I think, in that instant, was asking themselves whether they were wise, rather than trying to define wisdom in general, and felt almost as if they were being caught out. It wasn't an examination, though. And it set me thinking about what actual, actually defines wisdom, what concrete acts define wisdom. Is it the same as being fair-minded when you're resolving a dispute between friends, or knowing when to speak your mind in a situation which may well exacerbate the problem, to intervene or not to intervene? Is it an awareness that we should guard against criticising others which we, when we don't have all the facts, or learning to encourage rather than condemn our fellow creatures? 
Is wisdom to be gained from books or from life? The great French philosopher Montaigne, when he was defining wisdom, urged his readers to follow nature, not without regard for the individual's nature, and above all to make a friend of one's body, not an enemy, to cultivate consciousness, without which, he says, there can be no high degree of pleasure in any life. So we're back again to Socrates. I particularly like the notion of making a friend of your body. It has all sorts of implications for how we view ourselves and learn to accept our limitations. Montaigne suffered terribly from kidney stones and he would pass them in excruciating agony. But he managed to gather some beneficial learning from the physical pain he experienced. Now, I don't want to go down the road that says suffering is good for us. Far from it. But there's a kind of stoic bonhomie in his writings as he embraces humanity with all its foibles and inconsistencies. And yet, over his bed, he had the words, what do I know? He recognized that human learning was imperfect. Despite his own vast knowledge, he had the humility to recognize his own inadequacies. Now, I attend a course in philosophy, and last week I asked my teacher over coffee how she defined wisdom. She came back immediately with this. Wisdom is the marriage of theory with practice. And she paused and added, oh, and a little bit of judgment thrown in. Sounds beguilingly simple, doesn't it? You take the raw material of experience, you temper it with reflection as you ponder from the vantage point of the observer. Well, that's what we have to do. We have to try and step outside ourselves to ponder meaning and look at the bigger picture. And I think prayer, meditation, call it what you like, can achieve that. Someone once said that wisdom was the ability to cope with life, not to get sucked in, as it were. There are philosophers who advocate a stoical approach where you learn to control the passions and moderate your appetites. Expect the worst, say others, and you will never be disappointed. La Rochefoucauld, French philosopher again, argued that we need to develop a sense of perspective. In one pithy observation, he argued that we are never as happy or as wretched as we think we are. Mind over matter. Excess is the enemy of the equilibrium we all should seek. Epicurus had this to say. Do not spoil what you have by desiring what you have not. Remember that what you have now was once among the things you only hoped for. He was, you might say, a careful hedonist. What he's saying is that desiring what we do not have now diminishes or even cancels out our appreciation of what we do have now. And second, when we take a moment to consider the outcome of actually getting that something else that we now desire, we will realize that it is just going to put us back at square one, 
desiring yet something else. The overall lesson seems to be, enjoy the present, it's as good as it gets. This is a deceptively easy proposition. Where then does ambition, striving for self-improvement, the desire for material rewards fit into the equation? Camus believed that the fundamental question was to tackle the problem of whether or not our individual lives are worth living, to be or not to be. As human beings, we alone in the animal kingdom are blessed with that fundamental ability to self-reflect and find a meaning to life. And the meaning of life for someone like Camus was not something we look for, it is something we create. Now this stance requires a certain optimism in the face of that other thorny problem, that of the existence or not of free will, which I mentioned earlier. William James, an American philosopher, said this, My first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. For him, such a belief was an act of faith, not borne out by scientific research, but a kind of intuitive grasp of what being human was all about. Faith in the freedom to invent oneself. There's something to set your head spinning. It's a heady cocktail of optimism born by the positive belief that we are in charge of our own destinies. But hold on. Before you get too carried away, let's recall what my teacher said. Wisdom is the fusion of experience and theory tempered by judgment. We must create in a responsible way. Our acts will bear the judgment of history. They must, above all, be exemplary. What we choose to be will not only define us, but be a beacon for others to follow or reject. We must each find our moral purpose by digging deep inside ourselves, as well as keeping our eyes wide open. Self-analysis is not an easy path to tread, because you might not like what you find at times. The contemporary philosopher Thomas Nagel lays out the road to self-discovery in the following terms. The point is to live one's life in the full complexity of what one is, which is something much darker, more contradictory, more of a maelstrom of, impulse, of impulses and passions, of cruelty, ecstasy and madness, than is apparent to the civilised being who glides on the surface and seems to fit so smoothly into the world. The pursuit of wisdom demands courage and a willingness to embrace the contradictions of what it is to be human. Perhaps the ultimate quest is to spend time making peace with who, for better or worse, we have become. As Montaigne said, I consider nothing about humanity to be alien to me. He was a true citizen of the world. I wish you well on your journey. Some closing words from Khalil to Bran. 
Then said a teacher, speak to us of teaching. And he said, no man can reveal to you aught but that which already lies half asleep in the dawning of our knowledge. The teacher who walks in the shadow of the temple among his followers gives not of his wisdom, but rather of his faith and of his lovingness. If he is indeed wise, he does not bid you enter the house of wisdom, but rather leads you to the threshold of your own mind. The astronomer may speak to you of his understanding of space, but he cannot give you understanding. The musician may sing to you of the rhythm which is in all space, but he cannot give you the ear which arrests the rhythm, nor the voice that echoes it. And he who is versed in the science of numbers can tell of the regions of weight and measure, but he cannot conduct you thither. For the vision of one man lends not its wings to another man. And even as each one of you stands alone in God's knowledge, so must each one of you be alone in his knowledge of God and in his understanding of the earth. May the journey be a good one for all of us. Amen.